You're listening to Detroit Today. I'm Jake Neer, sitting in for Stephen Henderson. Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson has spent years working not just to make people care about science, but to enjoy or even love learning about how the universe works. You've seen him on TV documentaries and even sitcoms. He hosted the Fox series Cosmos, a space-time odyssey, now hosting a follow-up to that series. And now he's coming back to the Fox Theater in Detroit Monday, May 20th at 7.30 p.m. to give his talk. An astrophysicist goes to the movies where he'll review and sometimes critique the science that our favorite movies got wrong and even sometimes got right. Neil deGrasse Tyson joins me now on Detroit Today to talk about it. Dr. Tyson, welcome to Detroit Today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you. What should people expect if they uh, come out to this event? What do you hope people will get from it? Normally when someone shows up in town and they're going to multiple cities, they've got something to sell you, and so that it's a tour. It's a book or, or an album they just put out or something. And my relationship with the public in theaters is different from that. What happens is if, when I get invited to a theater, the host or the, mark, the, 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 the publicist or somebody related to the operations receives from me a list of 15 or so possible talks I could give, and then they pick. Uh, okay. And they'll say, well, he talked about this last year. Why don't we talk about this this year? And so they pick from it. And so I'm not really Tell, well, I, I am telling them because I'm giving them a choice of 15, but ultimately, really, it's the decision of the host. And so they picked an astrophysicist goes to the movies, which happens to be one of my favorite subjects. Sure. Well, so, and it, that, that system is really interesting to me. It sounds like in some ways it's got to be nice for you because you're not giving the same talk every single night, every city you're in. It's got to feel a little bit more fresh, probably for both you and the audience. Well, that's a, that's a perceptive point, and while that's true, um, I think that I'm familiar enough with all the content of all the talks that it doesn't matter how many times I give them. Plus, when, I, when I'm in front of an audience of a city, I, for me, it's still a very personal sort of one-on-one. I mean, it's one on 3,000, yes, but it still feels like a one-on-one. <laughs> I still feel like... We, we all just came to my living room, and we're all just going to have a conversation about the universe. And so I, I like being very comfortable in, in front of the room when I do this. So th- that's just how I think about learning, mm. right? It's not I'm giving a lecture and you're going to sit there and take notes. It's let's just talk. And it's one of my favorite subjects where I highlight movies that really should have gotten their science right but didn't. And the little clips, tiny clips that show, that reveal whether the producer, the writer, the director, whoever, um, did their homework or whether they didn't. And it's about 50-50, maybe 60-40 examples of where they got the science right versus where they got the science wrong. And I group it into categories of science. So, and and. In doing so, the kinds of movies that end up in the same category can be very diverse. So I have an entire section of the talk called Equations. Equations, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, <laughs> one, of, one of the movies in that section is The Breakfast Club. Hmm. Folks from the 80s would remember that film. Um, there's an equation in The Breakfast Another one, um, The Expendables 2, in that movie, is Einstein's equation for general theory of relativity. 
No, you probably didn't know that or didn't expect it. But I noticed this stuff, and I'm, <laughs> and I'm sharing it with you. And so uh, there's there's uh, Frozen is in reference to Frozen, to A Bug's Life, to The Lion King, to The Matrix, to um, the Titanic, because the ship when the ship sank, it had the wrong sky sitting up sitting up above right. the, the the spot in the North Atlantic. I had heard that. And, yeah. Yeah, that pissed me off. <laughs> not because I, it, it, it angered me not because the sky was wrong, all right? That's not specific. Yes, but not really. Mm-hmm. I got angered because if you remember, I don't know how old you are, but if you were around 20 years ago, 23 years ago when the movie came out, you would remember that a big deal was made of how accurate it was. Hmm. James Cameron went to the bottom of the Atlantic, found the Titanic with Robert Ballard, the famous oceanographer, and they have video of the wall sconces and the china patterns and the staterooms, and all this was meticulously recreated for this movie. And he puts the wrong sky over the sinking ship. <laughs> that, just, that was just inexcusable. Well, I will tell the story of that and how I even made contact with James Cameron. And we had a conversation about it, several conversations about it. Did he ever so tell you, is, hey, man, why can't you just let this go? You know? <laughs> no, because, I, well, first, he's a, he's, he's, a, he's a bit of a perfectionist, mm-hmm. and he's an artist. And other people tell me to let it go. They say, dude, it's just a movie. Mm. Well, you know, my, can I tell you my rebuttal to that? Can Please I do. All right, here it is. So let's say you were a car expert, and you're watching a period piece from, like, 1956, and parked on the street is a 1958 Chevy. You're going to cry foul. Mm-hmm. You're going to say, wait a minute, that, that design of the, the chassis didn't come in until 1950, and this is supposed to be 1956. I've taken me completely out of the mix. We would praise that person for their knowledge of cars to be able to notice that in such a film, wouldn't you? You wouldn't go to that person and say, it's just a movie, get over it. No. That person gets a free drink that night <laughs> for noticing that. Suppose, suppose we're watching a period Jane Austen piece, mm-hmm. and someone gets out of the horse-drawn carriage wearing tie-dyed bell-bottoms. You would cry foul. Mm-hmm. You'd say, no, that's not what people wore. That's an exaggeration, of course. Probably a more subtle one would be they're wearing a derby instead of a top hat. And the, the top and, and, and the Derby had gone out of style by then or something. I'm making that up, but it's an example. And you say, Wow, you know that much about that'd be great. That's amazing. Now when a scientist does it, now you're gonna say, Oh, <laughs> get over it, it's just a movie. So I don't think that's fair. That's interesting. That's you know, I, I just recently, and this this idea of having people who do what they do sort of critique depictions of what they do in media or the things that they study. I actually recently saw an interview with Alex Honnold, who is a professional rock climber. Uh, he was the subject of the movie that just won an Oscar, Free Solo, where he was the first person. Oh, the Nat person, Geo documentary, yeah. Yeah, absolutely, where he was the first person to climb El Capitan with no ropes. And someone sat him down in front of a TV screen and had him watch scenes from movies like Cliffhanger and Mission Impossible 2 and talk about how realistic this was. And of course, it was hilarious. But he also made a really interesting point, which was 
you know, everything in this is like turned up to 11, whether or not it's accurate or not. It's all very dramatic, obviously. But then if you if you compare those scenes to Free Solo, where it's an actual depiction of what is the subject of what's happening on on the screen. In that it, sense, it's not even a depiction. It just is. It is. Exactly. Yes. Um, it's it's just as gripping. It's just as sort of like, you know, clutching to your seat. I mean, and so I think that that's sort of an interesting way to look at it, that re- being realistic doesn't have to take anything away from a story. Correct. But there are certain things you just give to them. Like, okay, you want your ship to make noise in space. Fine. I'm not going to keep chasing you on this. Right? Otherwise, it, most battle star movies would be silent movies, right? Right. <laughs> they want to show true. explosions in space. I've given up on it. And I bet what mountain climbers have given up on is when someone is falling, mm. and then there's a person who's holding themselves up with one arm and grab the other person while they're falling mm. and hold on to them. Mm. Now, you should try this. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe not, right? <laughs> try, first, try holding yourself up with one hand, with one arm. Then start adding weight to your other hand, and then have that weight fall past you and grab it. <laughs> right. Okay? And this is shown in so many films. I'm thinking, all right, you just, uh, all right, fine. Forget the physics. I'll give it to you, all right? So in my talk, I'm actually, I do show some charity <laughs> to, <laughs> to certain scenes just because they're trying to move the plot along. But then I will hold them to other scenes where they got the science wrong, where if they got the science right, it would have been way more interesting mm-hmm. and way deeper and way more intriguing. And so this is not just simply... A, a, a gripe session in front of movie clips. There's, I'd like to think that I'm doing more than that for the viewer, so that when you go to see your next movie, you are empowered with some methods and tools of science so that you can pass judgment um, in, an, in an enlightened way, not in just an annoying way. And I'm happy to report that many movies that do have science themes have now retained a science consultant or a science advisor. And that's a good sign. That means they care. One of the biggest compliments I've ever gotten in my life was when I first met Andy Weir, who's the author of the book The Martian that became the movie The Martian, which, by the way, had a premium budget, had marquee director, Mm -hmm. marquee actors. So that's a sign that Hollywood is caring about strongly science-themed movies. Otherwise, they wouldn't put their best stuff behind it. This was Ridley Scott directed it. Of course, it had Matt Damon and five other actors you recognize. So this was, this was important. Now, he said that when he was writing it, but there was a lot of authentic science in the, movie, in, the, in the story. He said when he was writing it, he imagined that I was looking over me. I, Neil Tyson, was looking over his shoulder, perched and ready to comment on something he gets wrong. Hmm. So he would redouble his efforts to make sure all his calculations were right. Because when the book got published, he didn't want me tweeting about it, (laughs) talking about him messing up. So I said, wow, wow. So the, the implicit threat 
that I would come after him <laughs> made him write a stronger story. That that and, is and not, that's a compliment. That's for sure. I think I think so. <laughs> I think so. Yeah, uh, you're listening to Detroit today. I'm Jake Neer. I'm speaking with Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson, astrophysicist, director of the Hayden Planetarium in New York City, and best-selling author of books including Astrophysics for People in a Hurry and Astrophysics for Young People in a Hurry. And uh, we're talking about his upcoming event at the Fox Theater. Uh, he'll be giving a talk titled An Astrophysicist Goes to the Movies on Monday, May 20th at 7.30 p.m. Now, Dr. Tyson, uh, one of the things that I'm thinking about as I'm thinking of what to ask you in this interview, you're coming to a state right now that is grappling with how to get kids interested in science for a number of reasons. Number one, uh, you know, Michigan being a manufacturing center of the of the nation and world for so long, lots of demand for STEM careers, uh, people who are qualified to take on highly skilled jobs in tech, in engineering. But also, we've struggled mightily with our public schools. Only 20 percent of students in Michigan pass the state science exam each year, 20 percent. Um, and even the state has said, let's just not release those numbers for a couple of years because it's been so bad. Bad. You know, we're in this era where there are people like you who are trying to make science interesting for young people and for everyone. Um, what needs to happen to, to turn that around? I know that this is a big policy question, but from your perspective, what are, what are the things we should be thinking about? How long is this interview? <laughs> we have three hours. You, you have 30 you seconds. Now answer the, answer the question. <laughs> Um, let me give what I will try to make as a coherent answer, because there's a lot of bits and pieces that are in your question, sure. and I'm going to have bits and pieces come out of my mouth, and maybe by the end they'll fit together as a coherent puzzle. So here it goes. So first of all, I have a, an unorthodox view of education. Everyone is saying, let's make the kids scientifically literate. That's useless if we have scientifically illiterate adults who are in charge and wield resources and the power of politics. So for me, my focus has always been scientifically literate adults. Once they be achieve that, then they establish policies and direct resources, which could be money, programs, um, uh, um, methods and tools to boost the science literacy and the science budgeting, whatever it takes, of the school system. And that can basically happen practically overnight, within a single election cycle. If we have scientifically enlightened governance, they can put in policies that will ensure that every next generation will be a scientifically enlightened student, will we'll, we'll train scientifically enlightened students. And, and, and if you only focus on the students, I'm not that patient to wait until a 12-year-old kid in middle school becomes old enough to vote or old enough to run for president. I'm too impatient for that. All right? I want it to happen now. And, I, you know, the world can't wait. The climate can't wait. All right? So, so there's that. That's why I focus on adults. Now, also, there's a town in Long Island called Bethpage. That is where Grumman Aerospace made the Apollo lunar lander. Okay? The LEM, the Lunar Excursion Module. They designed and built it for NASA in the 1960s to go to the moon. That is one of the proudest towns in all of Long Island, which is 100 miles long. It has countless cities. Long Island, attached to New York City off the edge, you go to that town, everyone had a cousin, an uncle, an aunt, the, the grand, somebody worked on that for Grumman to advance the science and technological frontier of this country. 
And yes, it was a manufacturing town, but it was manufacturing on the frontier. I happen to know, because my sister of late works in Dearborn, Michigan, for Ford, that Ford, among other companies, are trying to take us into the future with self-driving cars, automated systems, high-tech, all of this. And so companies in towns have the capacity to have much more of an effect on the ambitions of people in that town than they, maybe than they otherwise know. It's not just come work on the assembly line. It's come help us take this industry into the future so that you will never get left behind as what happened in the 70s. All right? Where everyone says, we're not buying American cars anymore. Let's just go buy Japanese cars. Gives better gas mileage. Boom! There it is. City damn near goes bankrupt. Okay? So we know that innovations in science and technology are the engines of tomorrow's future, of, of tomorrow's industries. We know this. And other things can matter, but if you want to advance the economy, innovations in science and technology, history has shown, will accomplish that. So it's not just teaching people science and hoping that's going to change. It's leading this effort. So I'd like to think that Ford or other industries that are there can get together and say, let us transform this entire region. And that won't be overnight, but that takes a few election cycles, maybe a half a generation. It can happen. Mm. It can happen. Yeah. And it should happen. So it's not just teach kids science and all will be well tomorrow. It's more complex than that. But it's not undoable. Mm. Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson returns to the Fox Theater with his talk, An Astrophysicist Goes to the Movies, on Monday, May 20th at 7.30 p.m. Dr. Tyson, thank you so much for being here on Detroit Today. Th thanks for having me.